Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 138 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Professor or Miguel Valerio. A little bit about him. He earned his PhD from the Ohio, the Ohio State University. His research and teaching focused on the African diaspora in the literature and culture of the Iberian world from the late medieval period to the present. Excuse me, his research and teaching focus on right the African diaspora in the literature and culture, etc., his dissertation focused on Black cultural agency vis-a-vis vis religious confraternities and public festivals in the early modern Iberian Atlantic, particularly colonial Mexico City and Bahia, Brazil. His work has appeared in Afro-Hispanic Review, Confraternitas, and the edited volume Afro-Catholic Festivals in the Americas. He is currently completing his first book. This, oh, this is a little bit older. We're going to talk about his first book. The Black Kings and Queens of Colonial Mexico City, Identity, Performance, and Power, 1539 to 1640. Just rolls off the tongue, that title, right? <laughs> Miguel, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Doctor, it's a pleasure to have you. Professor, it's a pleasure, a pleasure to have you. How are you today? I'm good, and it's a pleasure um, to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's a title that just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> same, same. It's a pleasure to, to be talking to you. Um so I'd love to start by talking about about language. I mean, you're obviously a you traffic in words, you traffic in language. Like, did you grow up uh, monolingual? Did you grow up, you know, Spanish first language, English first language, both the same time? What was your relationship with languages? And then also with just the written word, like, you know, reading and writing around the house and school, et cetera. Uh, yeah, so thank you for, for that question. Um, I was monolingual till I was ten, so I was born in the Dominican Republic, and I had okay. no need to, I had no need or, uh-huh. or to speak uh, any other language. And then when I was ten, I migrated to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay. So there I began learning English, and soon thereafter I went into a bookstore and I found a book about Italian, and it's reading it and reading the lessons. Uh, they f- fell so close to 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 Spanish that I mm. that I it became a goal of mine. So when I got to college, I studied okay Italian, and then when I did my PhD, I studied Portuguese. And just uh, when you learn a second language, your brain develops, uh, mm. you know, these certain abilities. And uh, so having the brain that is bilingual, then multilingual, mm-hmm. and uh, and that. A love for languages, right? Although I only speak four, me, I'm not <laughs> only. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish I would speak a little more. Well, uh, you know, there's always what Romanian, right? I mean, that's a Roman yeah. There's language. Romanian, and I have a friend yeah. who's Romanian, but it's, it's actually very difficult. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it's like Romanian French out of, out of my league. Okay. Okay. I mean, okay. I will need more time to dedicate it. And um, it's also around the same time that uh, that I began reading. So in the Dominican Republic, as a kid, till I was 10, uh, I read the Book of Nature. If you think about medieval and Renaissance, uh-huh. I think that's right. The Book of Nature is you know, the world, right? Okay. I grew up in a rural area. I played around. We did things, you know. Uh, there wasn't much book reading. Then when I when I migrated, I was my my physical space was restricted, so books became the door to sure, right. Sure. Real book became the book, and um, I read everything I could get my hands on. I used to love encyclopedia, collectania, and, and then after that, some one day someone lent me a book of. Of poetry of Ruben Darío, okay. that was that was that, that ruined me for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I read poetry for for a long time, and I still love poetry uh, a lot. And uh, that set me on my path of literature, right, As, uh, to become a, a literary scholar. Although my book, it's, it's literary scholarship, but not, you know, modern literatures, okay, uh, right. more through cultural practices and texts. Sure. Ruben Darío, da- Darío? Yeah, it? Ruben Darío, yes. Um, I, I mean, I definitely know basics. I mean, is he to the Dominican as like Martí is to Cuba? I mean, like like national, like a national hero? Like, uh, No, so uh, I have since, since after reading Darío, I have read the Dominican poets. Mm. So Dominican poets would be um, Salome Ureña. She's the uh, most famous. Uh, she's actually the, the national poet she Price is named after her. Oh wow! And then there are other that were uh, Manuel del Cabral, Pedro Mir that were important in the 20th century. Uh, but Ruben Darío is Nicaragua. He was Nicaragua. Excuse me. Right. There was actually a Nicaraguan nun who 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 gave me his book. Oh, but wow. yeah, but Ruben Darío is like my aunt who who grew up in the Dominican Republic and migrated later. Mm-hmm. But when she was in school, she memorized, and everybody did this in the old days. They had to memorize uh, Darío poetry. Mm. So Darío is the pre-Neruda, right? He's one of those okay. continental poets. And mm. he was taught in school. And many people my aunt's age have memorized, had to memorize uh-huh. uh, poems. I know a few lines from, he has very famous poems. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so he's a big, big. And he was a founder of modernism, which was a renewal both in, in Latin America Mm-hmm. And in Spain, so it's the first time that a Latin American writer is influencing literature in Spain in a big yes. way. Yes. Okay. Excellent. So uh, you talked about the book of nature. You talked about getting into more formal, you know, reading and the poets, etc. Um, as you got into college, into your, you know, graduate studies. I mean, did you go straight from like, did you go straight to graduate studies? Did you do like, did you kind of work in between? Like what was your formal education as far as reading? You know, reading uh, right. So, uh, from uh, in terms of literature, the the what I read in in school, primary education, from sixth grade onward, it was a lot of American and English literature. Mm-hmm. In high school, for some reason, uh, uh, the English teachers that I had, we did a lot of Shakespeare. Okay. Uh, so I know well. I have read a lot of Shakespeare. And then when this nun lent me the, the, this book of Neruda poetry, it was mm-hmm. discovering for the first time uh, literature in Spanish. 
And then I went to New York to do my university studies. And then uh, because I was living in the U.S. Virgin Islands in the Caribbean, there wasn't much access to books in Spanish, Spanish uh, literature in Spanish, but in New York there was, right? There you go. And I got to New York right as they had some big Spanish bookstores that were just closing, mm-hmm. like Gorum and Macondo were just closing. Uh, but I started amassing books and buying everything I could mm-hmm. and reading everything mm-hmm. I could. I also had uh, uh, mentors, people who who saw my enthusiasm in class mm-hmm. uh, for literature. So when I went to to college, my major was philosophy, and then I okay. then I but I took Italian and I took uh, Spanish lit- literature, uh, uh-huh. and they saw my enthusiasm and mentored me and kind of were the people that. Uh, uh, told me that it was that this was a path, a professional, uh-huh. a professional path. Well, tell me about the the languages. Like I think of, I mean, in the book you you write about like the the Jesuits and Ignatius, and you know, I went through Jesuit high school, Jesuit college. You know, I know the Jesuits very well. But um, what was my point to that? Ah, yes, <laughs> this, idea, this idea of I remember one of them, the Jesuits. You know, they're they're very worldly. They're very educated. They speak. You know. And one of my teachers, he was my Spanish teacher in high school, but he he grew up in an Italian family. He he spoke Spanish. He you know knew the Latin. Uh, I think I'm forgetting another maybe one of the Romance languages. Oh, he spoke like he spoke knew some Hebrew and all of that. Do you have trouble like I mean knowing so many languages? Like do you get mixed up at times? Do you oh no it's no it's esta palabra es esta palabra like is that something that happens? Or, like, um, a good good problem to have. So I I was because I learned uh, Spanish more or less through a na- more natural mm-hmm. process, right? Mm-hmm. English was forced on me, you know, so to so to say, it. and then Italian was the language I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, but also there was time, you know, from one to 10 Spanish, you know, then English, then, mm-hmm. so they came at uh, unique periods were dedicated to them. Mm-hmm. The only one that, uh, Portuguese, which is the last one I study, mm-hmm. sometime I'm speaking, I will, I'm speaking Portuguese and I get an Italian word in there, mm-hmm. or vice versa. I'm speaking Italian mm-hmm. and, and a Portuguese word get in there. So my brain um, is uh, uh, because I haven't uh, spent much time living in either uh-huh. country where those languages spoken. I have I mean, I have been there. Sure. And I have friends that I speak, you know, Portuguese to and Italian with, mm-hmm. but my brain is still mixing those a little. They're still very close in my eh. in my brain, I think. In the lado de mi mamá, soy soy italiano. Yo sono yo sono italiano. Ah, parlo un po, parlo un po, un po italiano. Quiero quiero saber más, quiero saber más. Tell me about the the Dominican Spanish. Um, Wawa es como autobús. Yeah, Guagua is autobus. So, uh, so I mean, so, like, you know, I'm sorry. Just the idea of like, um, you know, you talked about like the. I think it was Dario. You were saying like in Neruda, you know, like where the Spanish from the quote unquote New World came back to Spain, and that kind of thing. Like, do you see in the scholarship? Do you see the the Spanish of the Caribbean still be considered like lesser than or different, or is it like on par with you know Espanol de you know Castellano Castellano? Well, the the purists will always, you know, will ha- will 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 want uh, standard Spanish, Real Academia Spanish, mm, Real Academia, yeah. 
but the field of social linguistic has which has been a, around for uh, 40 50 years mm-hmm. uh, they have studied language stigma and of course now people are informed you know right and i mean when i uh, when i left the dominican republic at 10 i mostly spoke what you can call informal dominican okay um so dominican children when they go to school there is an effort to to get them to speak standard spanish mm-hmm. um and but still, you know, outside outside of work, outside of a formal occasion, uh, you you can speak um, in Dominican Spanish. Um, and uh, for me, because I left before I had a full uh, formal education in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, when I got to college, and then my interest in literature, my interest in literature was nostalgia because reading. Gabriel Garcia Marquez and reading poetry did something to my heart and my Marquez, memory. Marquez, Marquez, hey. About a place I had left, but also um, I realized, you know, that um, uh, I didn't have formal Spanish. Mm. You know, even you know, even when I was doing my master, people were still correcting me. I was still, I mean, I still get words wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, wrong by you know, yeah, wrong exactly, by right. certain standards, right? Right, 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 right. Um, my my first teaching job was teaching Spanish at a school that had a lot of native speakers, right? I'm, you know, I'm 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 a gringo, I'm a wedo, you know, I don't I don't I'm not a native speaker, and I remember a lot of the the parents of my students were like, oh, cool, like our students, you know, hispanohablantes, like they're gonna get the real Spanish. And I was just like, no, 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 <laughs> you know, clearly I'm not, you know. <laughs> right Spanish is the real spanish right you know um i wonder about the use it sounds like it seems like maybe spain is on the you know one side of the spectrum as far as like very much using tu 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 maybe mexico more with the usted in the dominican is it heavy on usted or tu or not doesn't really matter yeah so spain is more informal right uh, uh tu y vosotros uh, and then the dominican in latin america in general uh, uh um, there is more formality, even uh, even um, speaking with members of, of, of the family. Okay. And this is not universal. I mean, in my household, when I was growing up, mm-hmm. we we treated older relatives with usted. Okay. Our, like our great-grandmother, our grandmother with uh-huh. usted. But our uncles and aunts, we treated with two. Uh-huh. Uh, but then you can have another household next to ours where everyone treated himself with two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, usted is more archaic. I mean, I uh, in urban centers, two is more more used. So there is also a, a you know social signifiers. Okay. Yeah. Sure. talking about like you know learning shakespeare in school and you know as someone who's taught english and spanish but you know an english teacher like i'm not not a fan of shakespeare you know <laughs> respect and whatever but just not you know i'm not my cup of tea but and you know talking about like darío and you know dominican writers etc did you feel like a sense of representation in what you read at all in those younger days whether that you know all the different cultures and subcultures that make us up did well, you feel like um, you read about people like you in all the different ways that you know that you are you. Um, 
I um I don't know if I have ever read looking for myself in what I read hmm. uh, as a person who who for some reason at some point developed this attraction to language to words hmm. and the way they work even Shakespeare I was reading for the way words were put together mm-hmm. for the you know the, the, the musicality of words, especially right. in Shakespeare. And I mean, in reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I did, uh, I did the world he describes, you know, the Caribbean uh, did resemble mine, although I never saw gypsies in my hometown, <laughs> but the geography, right? The, sure. the, the planting plantations, right? Those I remember, um, or oh, rainy days. And stuff like that. Some stuff were, some stuff reminded me of, of, I guess I was looking for the musicality and the universe rather than myself. Mm. Although I mean, I fancy myself a Hamlet sometime or whatever. (laughs) So did you read Shakespeare in the the English or in Spanish? Yeah, this was, yeah, this was high school in in English, yeah. Okay, oh wow, I would have been interested to read in Spanish, man. Um, who what what resonated with you about Marquez, his short stories and in particular his his books, todos? Well, the first thing I read by him, which it just had just come out uh, when I got to New York, was his last novel, uh, Memoria de mi puta triste, hey. and it had just come out. It was the last novel, and then I read, you know, then I read a hundred years of solitude and other mm-hmm. stuff. Um, mm-hmm. As I said before, it was the the geography, the place, uh, for example, in Chronicle of a Death Foretold, you know, my town was such a town. It was a small town. There were uh, there were things that had to do with honor and, you know, in the sense mm-hmm. of the novel, right, mm-hmm. uh, that is going on and other things. It was a rural town, uh, which he describes. I mean, most of his work is in right. rural places. Definitely. That 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 reminded me of my hometown. Okay, man, I love talking Marquez. I love to talk about getting into academia yourself. Did you always feel like that was a path once you started getting involved in languages? Did you were you on that path on your own? Did you have you know a lot of mentors and people along the way who, who pointed you that way? How did you, if there was a eureka moment or maybe multiple where it was like, okay, this is this is what I want to do. So uh, when I when I was undergrad, I was in the seminary to be a priest. So that's why oh, I studied wow. philosophy. Uh, but then because I studied Spanish and, and Italian, uh, the people in Spanish, um, uh, you know, they had told they had told me when I was finishing up that they wanted me to do their master's program. Of course, I couldn't because I was in a path already. Mm. Uh, but when I left that path. Uh, the first thing I thought is, what do I do now? Well, I, I'll someone offer me a master. <laughs> I'm gonna go get this master. And so, uh, when I went back to New York to get my master's in, in Spanish, is when I found, you know, found out that if I wanted to to make a living, to have a salary, <laughs> to have a, a stable job in. in doing what I love, teaching literature, talking about literature, reading and writing, um, that I needed to get a PhD, right? And then going to get a PhD 
was a lot a lot another learning experience. Uh, when I applied to the PhD, I still didn't know anything about academia, how it worked. Mm. I was lucky enough to to get into Ohio State that um, that they saw my profile and liked it. And then both in my master's and my PhD, I had uh, a great number of mentors, mentors that are still with me, uh, who guided me along mm. and, and continue to. To, yeah. to guide me in the in the profession excellent are you are you this time are you like a full-time teacher are you on a sabbatical do you yeah i'm a full-time professor uh, oh. at the moment i am on on sabbatical writing my second book all right yeah well i usually ask that at the end but tell us about your future project tell us about your second one if you want to share yeah 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 so the second book is um so in the first book it's about brotherhoods confraternities and the festival um, that they staged in mexico city and you know looking at mexico city as a center of an atlantic world of a broader world mm -hmm. and as you read in my bio i study from when i did my phd i studied mexico and brazil uh, so in a sense i took my dissertation and divided it into two books mm. so the second book is going to be brazil uh, but it's uh, it's moving beyond festivals. There are two chapters on festivals. Um, one of the festival is a king, a king, black king performance, uh, but the other festival is something altogether different. Uh, but also in Brazil, uh, these confraternities that I study uh, were able to build their own churches, uh, which they were not able to do elsewhere in the Atlantic. Mm. And also, in some places, uh, they gave these churches Afrocentric iconography. Hmm. The saints as black, you have black angels, stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, so the idea of sovereignty continues in the second project, but in other practices, you know, other other sovereign practices. Okay. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh so the Black Kings and Queens of Colonial Mexico City Identity, Performance, and Power, 1539 to 1640. Talked about it being part of your, your dissertation. Um, you preface it with, with you know, the ideas of joy from uh, Imani Perry. This was June of 2020. Um, you write, um, you write, you know, Perry points out, many see Blackness as a curse. As Perry contends, this is not to see Blackness as Black people see themselves. Right. And then I think this was, I'm not sure if this is straight from her piece, quote, well, I think this is, this is yours based on what she wrote. Joy is not found in the absence of pain and suffering. It exists through it. Right. That, right? Those are her words. Those yeah. are her words. Excuse me. Excuse me. Right. That's the quote. Yeah. Racism, poverty, incarceration, et cetera. Um, you know, towards the end of that, but I do not want pity from a single soul. This is after listing all of the, the oppression, the anti-blackness, Sin and shame are found in neither my body nor my identity. Blackness is an immense and defiant joy. I mean, just great writing on her part, obviously. This was in, you know, a few months after George Floyd was murdered, you know, and she wrote this this famous piece in the Atlantic. Was there was this one of the seeds for the book? Had the book already been mostly planned and mostly written? Was this was the preface kind of ironically, was it maybe towards the end of writing? The yes. Book? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the way books are written. The preface is usually the last part. Ah, uh, okay. Because, you know, the introduction is usually the last part. Sure. If you have a preface, it's the last part. So, yes, 
Uh, but it was um, uh, it was towards the end of the book. I was uh, wrapping up the book at that time uh, when George Floyd uh, was killed and all the all the uh, all the black voices and ally voices uh, rose up in 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 in, in clamor. Uh, but then, of course, um, as Imani Perry was seeing in the news, it was a one-sided representation mm. of blackness as victimhood, and she wanted to respond to that. And because I was wrapping up my book, writing, uh, and and I read that piece, and it resonated what I was doing because uh, in the book, in chapter two, I focuses on instances where black people in Mexico. Uh, were prosecuted and even executed mm. for, for this for this uh, uh, festive practice that I study in the book. Uh, but the example that I use in the preface to 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 frame uh, to frame the book and connect it to to the black struggle in the present and through history mm-hmm. is that um, one those events began because a black woman had been killed. And the blacks in Mexico were clamoring for justice uh, because even if you were a slave in the Spanish Empire, you had certain rights, and this woman shouldn't have not been killed, right? Um, of course, I mean there was a, this, this that was a theory. The practice was altogether different, and no justice came about. But the black people demanded justice. They came out on the street, demanded justice, and then. Uh, things get messed up a little, mixed up a little, uh, because the woman was killed in October. Uh, then in December, the blacks are supposed to elect their new king. Mm. And they do that. And then this is interpreted by authority as a, as a rebellion plot. So they arrest everybody, exile some people, and then the black king gets exiled. So the black have to replace him and elect another king. Uh, the point I'm getting at is that in this episode, uh, every time the king is eliminated in some way by Spanish authority, the black replace him with a new king, right? Saying mm-hmm. they're reinstituting their, their institutions and continuing their, their tradition so that the struggle does not disrupt right the festive practice, right? Mm. It informs the festive practice. Right. And as Imani Perry, you know, it is that defiant joy that fuels, right? That feeds them, that gives them strength to continue on in a world that, you know, uh, that the you know that treats them as, as disposable things. Well, it's like, I mean, for a couple of times there, I'm like, are you talking about 2020, 2020? Are you talking about, you know, 15, 1600s? Because exactly, you know, that was it. Exactly. As I was, as I was, uh, you know, as I was working on that chapter, I saw, you know, the long durée. I mean, things have changed very little, you know, as I say in the preface. But the idea of the book and the idea of Imani Perry's piece is not to remember the black struggle as just a struggle, right? Mm. As an empty struggle, as a, as a sad struggle, but a struggle fueled by joy and defiance, by this defiant joy, uh, which is uh, affirming our being, right? Throughout the struggle. Mm. Well, yeah, when you talk about like, you know, the woman, 
should not have been killed. Obviously, it's like, well, it's like the no no justice, no peace that you heard in the protest, right? Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, man. Well, you talked about chapter two, which is called Rebel Black Kings and then Queens in, in parentheses, race, colonial psychosis, and Afro-Mexican kings and queens. And that's about a lot of what you write in that chapter is about, okay, you know, like you said, like, you know, when when there were these 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 festivities, these performances, and there were, you know, shows of power by black people and that power might have just, you know, wearing jewelry, wearing, you know, there was always like a paranoia there, right? Mm, like, oh, yes. well, they're getting together, they're getting together. And you're making the point like, no, they're getting together for these different reasons, for solidarity, for community, some, you know, some to show, no, yes, we are, we are loyal or whatever the term would be, right, to the crown. Right, right? yes. Right. So chapter one is more about, you know, laying the the origins um, early colonial Mexico, the origins of festive black kings and queens, and the birth of the Black Atlantic. Um, you write some, you write kind of like a thesis of sorts towards the beginning. Quote: The performances studied in this book express this radical blackness, and what could be more radical than performing as a sovereign people in a slaveocracy? That's some Dario right there. That's some, <laughs> that's some. That's some poetry. Quote: To study joy is 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 not to forget pain. Just that balance there, and so you basically study, you know some smaller text but five five main texts i guess you'd say throughout the book yeah. a lot of it seems to be in response to what you call quote the exotic genre right this idea i think i think of it today is like oh you know he's from africa well how many countries are there there how many different cities how many different urban rural right right um and but you're talking about there's a lot of scant there's there's scant information on a lot of this performance so you do a really good job you fill in some of the gaps with art Right, you you write about quote listening to images. There was not a lot of Afro Mexican festive visual art, but you do fill it in. You fill it in with some of these writers. So I just want to ask you, like, what exactly do you mean by festive? I mean, we're talking about just parades, desfiles. I also want to ask you about like, you know, you know, I feel like I know a little bit, but I'm by no means an expert. But like, when you think of like Afro Mexican, you mostly think of like Oaxaca, maybe Guerrero, the Costa Chica, maybe um, I don't know Chiapas, maybe Veracruz. So if you could talk a little bit about Africa, people of African descent in Mexico City, and then also just like, what do you, what do you mean by fest, you know, by festive? Like, are we talking just a parade party? Like what? Uh, yes. Uh, so thank you for those two questions. I'll start with the festive, uh, which, you know, is, although I wrote the book, is a difficult question mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to define, to define a term, right? When you get philosophical about a term, but uh, so there are, public festivals in which Black participates, and those uh, take the form of desfile parades or religious processions, uh, right, performance within a religious profession. Uh, most, of, most of the public festivals I study uh, took place in the Plaza Mayor, today Zócalo in Mexico City. Oh, okay. And the one I study in Chapter 4 took place inside the Viceregal Palace, uh, which is today the house, the presidential palace, right? Mm. Which a lot of people go to see because Diego Rivera painted uh, the interior. Is that where he does the Grito de Dolores too? Uh, I think I think it's there. Yeah, he okay. painted the history of Mexico at the National Palace. Yeah, okay. Uh, so and so there are also the public festivals. Uh, uh, there are three in the book, three public festivals, and then there are two private performance. Um, mm -hmm. Well, two documents or various documents that describe two episodes. One is multiple, and one is just a single uh, 
one of them is uh, 1608. It's a private party. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the black community. It's not a public. Right. This is why it's problematic for colonial authority. Uh, it's in the house of a free black woman, Melchiora, uh, who is named. And then there's a coronation. There is dancing. There is eating. Uh, there is feasting, right? And then, uh, so that's, uh, that's you know, that's, is the doc- the document comes from a judge who is actually the best, the most detail we have about right. the coronation and everything. Uh, the other, the, the, the 1611 to 1612 episode that starts with the woman's death that has several coronations throughout, right? Those we don't have much details. We can just compare to 1609. Uh, you know, there was it was a Christmas party, uh, then replacing the kings, a ceremony to 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 elect new kings. Uh, so festive in the terms of the acts that are going on are celebratory. Okay, uh, but also I think uh, festive as an outlook on on the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that the world is just not gloom, but also there is something. To celebrate about the world, right? Right. So the second question is is actually I actually left the easy question for 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 last mm-hmm. because it's it's, it's easy because it's a historical question, right? So uh, Guerrero and, and Veracruz today have the largest population okay. for the historical reason that those were the, the ports. Mm-hmm. Especially Veracruz was the, where, where uh, slaves came in. There was also a lot of blacks involved in the work of the port in both Guerrero and Veracruz. Okay. Um, and then um, there was... Uh, in the 17th century, there was a large black population in Mexican uh, in Mexican cities, Mexico City, Puebla, uh, Valladolid, today is Morelia, mm. and Querétaro, uh, Michoacán, other places. Um, the ports always had more people uh, because of uh, it was, you know, uh, they were work is so in 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 in, in Acapulco, mm. the the ship that was taking uh things to to um things to to Spain right from Peru okay. went up to Acapulco and then the thing went across to Veracruz right okay so there was a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um. The, also the the Manila galleon arriving, mm. Acapulco, so all of this, and then in Veracruz the Atlantic uh, uh, traffic of, of of ships, and black people were involved in this work and also uh, lived in Veracruz. A large uh, black community uh, developed, which which is still mm. there in mm. Guerrero and Veracruz, mm. and Guerrero is named Guerrero because uh, Vicente Guerrero, who is one of the father of Mexican independence who fought for Mexican independence was a mulatto mm. and Morelia for Morelos who was also a mulatto oh okay 
So in, in Mexico City and other Mexican cities, um, uh, the black population has historically, uh, starting at the end of the colonial period, uh, disappeared to mixture, right? Mm. Uh, uh, that they did not, uh, they did not keep a a cultural presence, right? That that signals them out as black mm -hmm. outside of Guerrero and 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 Veracruz. But you might still see people phenotypically black who present as black, or they mix the mixture, which is in, in a way is the argument in the conclusion of the book, right? Mm. That Mexican culture, beginning with this with with this cultural mixture, was to continue in such a way that that this different disappears. But in the colonial period, uh, uh, there was a large black population in Mexico City because mm. there was you know, it was a small free black population, uh, but there was also a lot of labor. Uh, depending, uh, you know, blacks were involved. In the 17th century, blacks in Mexico City and throughout Mexico kind of had a monopoly on being coach uh, drivers. Hmm. So in, 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 in 17th century painting, and we don't have a lot of um, blacks in painting from the from earlier centuries, hmm. but in, seven, in, in 18th century painting, sorry, uh, yeah, there's, there's a famous painting of, 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 of the center, right? The Socalo. And all the activity is like it's a big, uh, it's a big religious festival, and you see all the important people in Mexico City arriving in coaches, mm -hmm. and all the coach drivers are black, right? Mm. And the most important painter in in Mexico from Mexico, colonial Mexico, Juan Correa was a mulatto. Mm. There's another painter who was also a mulatto. He was an apprentice of Juan Correa, so. Mm. I mean, blacks have been important for the development of Mexican culture. Uh, they were important. They existed in important numbers in, in Mexico City. And there's, mm -hmm. there's, um, there's several books about blacks in Mexico City. And there is a new book about blacks in, 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 um, in, in colonial Puebla. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I just, just, just yesterday I was talking to, um, woman uh, a poet her name is Vanessa Angelica Villarreal she's out of Texas originally you know lives in SoCal but an incredible poet but she was she writes a lot about indigeneity right and we and I brought I brought up the Octavio Octavio Paz line and he said something about Mexi Mexicans are the la, la raza cosmica something to that effect right so that, she, yeah right and she really she really gave very, very common Mexican idea uh-huh after the revolution, yeah, right. She gave you know she gave a very interesting take on it that I know is you know backed by the scholarship. Just this idea of like that it was meant with good with good intentions, but could definitely be seen as like a, an erasure of right, like yes. an erasure of indigenous roots, an erasure of African roots. You know, um, you know, which is obviously not um, not the positivity that's being right. looked for there. So yeah, the raza cosmica or. or or the Mexican post-revolutionary government mm -hmm. elevated the Mexican mythical past, right. but kind of erasing the genetic, and blacks were starting in the 19th century, oh. erased from the national imaginary, and 
there at the moment there is a lot of research into the blacks in in the history of Mexico. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. In Mexico itself, among Mexican scholars. Okay. Right. Right. You you know the I mean you talk about the la casta the caste system you know within within academics right about kind of arguing about you know is it is is it about race how did Europeans see race right those type of things you write about um, so it's interesting to talk about am I correct that it's bocales bocales with a b was the term used for Africans who were brought directly to the New World versus bocales bocales excuse me bocales which is and, a Muslim. Right, yeah. right for Boca, right, and yeah. versus the Ladinos, which I know is used in different countries, different meanings. But right, these, these were Africans, right, who had had, who spoke Spanish, who you know grew up, lived in in Portugal or España, those type of things, and then you know all the different racial caste systems, right, peninsulares, criollos, and all that. You write about that in a very interesting way. You write that quote cre creole culture forms through cultural intimacies right things like when the uh there was a seemingly like teaming up of indigenous people Nahual, and african people in doing some of the masks and doing the hunt you know like the re the re um like possibly mocking but but a togetherness there the creole um you write about the diaspora that had ceremonies established in the home continent and then quickly took, but they quickly, many back in Africa, you're saying, quickly took to Christianity and European customs. And I know there's a lot to talk about there, right? Like how much of that is like, okay, we're just going to say it just to not make any waves, right? How many truly did and all of that, right? So, but but I also want to talk about just the, those, those racial stratifications, racial categories. When you use that term mulatto, which I know is very loaded, is that, is that, African and indigenous is that African and European like to talk about some of those especially with the Spanish right and sorry you're talking about how you know especially like in Catholicism right there's this idea of like hombres de razón I don't know the exact word but like that you know that Africans that black people were not people of reason indigenous were not people of reason right talk a little bit about the the culture the the social and, and racial caste system of Mexico specifically uh, yes, I mean I'm not an expert on on the subject. Uh, um, there, there's uh, there's a great book called Before Mestizaje, which talks about race at the time before before the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, so there were there were the caste systems, but <clears throat> uh, no, this idea of cultural intimacies, right, is that uh, people, especially. Uh, in, in, in distinct social stratas were interacting with each other, uh, mingling with each other, white, indigenous, uh, uh, blacks, right? So for example, mulatto in Mexico uh, was both the child of a black and a Spaniard, okay. or indigenous and a black, right? Because mm. um, in Peru, a different word is used when the child is the product of an indigenous and a black person. Sambaigo is used in Peru, hmm. which is where we get the word sambo, which is later used in uh, the but um which is still a word that is used in Peru. Still a slur, right? I mean yes, it's, it's a slur, it's a slur and it's yeah. used in Peru. There's a 
Juan o Vargas Llosa Novo, eh, la conversación en la catedral. This word is used a lot in the, mm. in the, in the novel, and other, other Vargas Llosa novel, uh, to, to refer to black people. Uh, but um, so there was this was this um, this mixture which the book on Puebla talks about also that the you know people came together in the marketplace mm -hmm. right, and and developed relationships and you know black communities developed strong relationship with black communities but they also had maybe they were transactional sometimes they were beyond transactional hmm. uh, relations with other groups right and even these festivals uh, these public festivals participating in these public festivals imply or require right yeah transactional relations with other groups from among, among the groups right so this mm -hmm. cultural intimacy coming together for one common purpose, right? Even if there is, so there is this discourse of difference, which is the caste system, right? So the caste system, you can think about it as a discourse of difference. Hmm. And cultural intimacy, you can think of it as what's really going on. Sure. In terms of how people interact in their daily lives. Sure. You, um, obviously, obviously something that's very interesting about the book is, you know, if we're talking Mexico specifically, I mean, there's a very big Catholic influence, right? I mean, Mexico, Brazil, some of the most Catholic countries in the world. The confraternity, is, is cofrade the word in Spanish for confraternity? Cofradia. Cofradia. Yes. Cofrades are the, are the gente. So not, not the members, right. Um, but you write really interestingly about, you know, these, cof these cofradias, um, some that were, like you said, probably transactional and, and you know, the Spanish sometimes kind of like, here, you have this, this power, but we were going to have somebody like oversee, or sometimes they were, you know, as independent as they could be amongst the African descent, those of African descent. But this idea of like venerating African and mulatto saints, generating community togetherness, you know, helping the sick, the poor, the dying. I mean, I mean, mutual aid society, you hear that term a lot these days. I mean, that's exactly immediately what I thought about, right? A lot of great things that were done. Um, you write, quote, this points to one of the main, what's that French, raison d'etre, Tetra. Yeah, Razon that reason for being. Right. Of black performances in the Americas to recall, to keep Africa alive in the collective memory, and in so doing, to honor their ancestors. Black performances in the Atlantic, moreover, did not merely evoke the past, but projected themselves onto the present, not only as the performances of a desired sovereignty, but also of social and cultural agency, a self-fashioned sovereignty, etc., etc., you make that point about the joy, about the communities. Um, I wonder then how much of these confraternities, how much of the performances, how much of the festivities were true performances of joy and how much of it was a little bit like watching the back and, you know, saying like, hey, this is kind of like only for, from the, for the outside to see. Does that make sense? Like how much... How much acting was done, you know, when there's when there's a group of, of African descent, you know, highlighting a, a European victory. How much of that is like, OK, we're going to kind of pull one over on them and pretend like we're into this, you know, and how much of it was that true sovereign joy that you that you write about and talk about? Yeah. So, I mean, um, 
the 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 public the participation in public festivals of course are not done just for the joy of it right okay they are of course to show loyalty mm-hmm. to ingratiate themselves to give a positive image right to give a positive impression right to demonstrate them to say in a way through gestures that they are part of the community right but um, we do not need to I don't think that we need to think that it can necessarily need to be devoid of joy hmm. but in general uh, this tradition because it was so widespread in the Atlantic mm-hmm. and in the case of Brazil uh, where we have more example of this tradition okay and elsewhere elsewhere that we know of it, in in Argentina, in in Peru, in Panama. Uh, so we have we have from all those places records of blacks participating in public festivals with this performance. But we have far more record of they doing it themselves among themselves in their community, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a a, a long tradition. Right, in 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 most black community, this in, in, with the cofradías, this was an annual performance. Right, uh, this is something they created themselves. Uh, they you know they brought together to to it's, it, it does it's not doesn't come from one culture; it's a mixture of cultures. Mm-hmm. But it's something they 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 put together themselves. It varies from place to place, right? It's not the same in Mexico City as in Brazil, but the the tradition in every place has the same uh, uh, motifs, right? Mm. So that this was not something that was forced upon them, right? And there was something that they did uh, as as often as they could to express uh, themselves in this way, right? Mm. And we know. Uh, from all sorts of accounts, despite the prejudice that those accounts are and, and the exotization mm. that those accounts do, that these were joyous occasions, right? Mm. There was a crowning, whether it was mockery or or something else or both, right? Mm. There was dancing, there was eating. Uh, in some, ta- some instances, there was comedy involved, right? Mm. So... It, there is there is definitely I have no doubt about the joy that was that mm-hmm. that this express right mm-hmm. uh, this was a joyous expression right mm. even when it's done as part of a transaction to ingratiate itself with public authority sure it need not be devoid of joy right right I wonder maybe if there was a, a person we should all look up there was somebody maybe you didn't get to write a lot about. Um, who was kind of a surprise to you or interesting to you that you read about that you that you read about in your own studies? Uh, I mean, I wish I could find more about uh, one guy, uh, Francisco Loya, who who is doing the crowning, or or Martin, uh, or, or or another guy who um, uh, Juan Bautista, who is being crowned. Right? So mm. who is being crowned? So there is so. Um, in the performance, mm-hmm. I studied the performance, uh, but individuals themselves, there isn't very much information. Right, right. right. 
the you know right the wish would be to know more about um uh this i mean i did write an, an another article about a different juan bautista mm. who left who because he wrote to the king several times uh, he left a long record so you can follow that person uh, okay and individualize that person in the case of the uh, of the performances you can individualize them to say their name and what title they held in the performance mm -hmm. and in the case of you know whether they were free you may know whether they were free uh, Melchora owned that was her house she owned it yes you know black women free black women in Latin America in Colorado America owned their houses and so did some but mostly women owned their houses uh, she hosted a party it seemed that the house where where they had that celebration it was a sort of uh, of an inn if you think of an inn in the old day right hmm. people come to eat and according to this there's accusation of gambling hmm. but yes it's also her her house is it's a place where those joyous things are taking place sure on a far regular more regular basis than one document let us show uh, right right yeah i wonder uh, thank you for that i wonder if we could end with um just like the the process of writing a type of book like this, like, you know, I used to love like a history professor in college. He would like, he or she would like give a thesis, like, Hey, I'm going to prove this by the end. And then by the end, you know, most of the time she did, you know, and it was like a very like linear, linear process in some ways. And there's also like uh, maybe a healthy company. I don't know if competition is a word, but right. But you're, you're, you're positing, you know, you're positive. You have your own theses and hypothesis, et cetera. But you're also playing off what other people have written and agreeing or disagreeing. So I wonder, like, the just the process of writing like an academic type book, uh, a study type book that also that plays that includes and also quote unquote competes against other scholars. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, the process. Of course, there is um, uh, every process of writing your own poetry, your own novel, even an academic book, is finding your voice, right? Mm. And as an academic, and the way I was trained, or the way I feel, if I'm writing about something, I want to read everything that has been written about this. Right, right. And so through the process of writing, the mentors that I had helped me find my own voice mm -hmm. by... Uh, you know, having me rely on the scholarship, but now repeat the scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. Not just echo what I read. Advance it or... Right, right. right. Advance it further, uh, put my own voice. Um, uh, one of the things that I have learned from mentors in terms of academic writing is making bold statement, taking the risk, right? Mm -hmm. Making bold statement. Uh, I mean... The book has facts. There, there are indisputable facts in the books. Sure, but the book is also a, a, a debate, right? It's part of a debate, right? So not everything in the book is settled. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's part of a conversation, right? I'm adding mm -hmm. to the conversation, mm -hmm. and this is what I'm saying. Uh, I took the risk of saying uh, what I'm saying. Uh, the book is certainly not free of, of factual errors. Or, or errors of, of logic, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah. 
So it was a long, it was a great process uh, of learning how to find my voice academically. Mm. Of course, you're plagued by insecurities when you write. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I was terrified. I'm still terrified <laughs> still. of what the people are going to be reading a book I wrote and what's going to happen. <laughs> well, congratulations. Um, you know, like I said, I talking to you has made me a lot smarter. Reading the book made me a lot smarter. Um, you know, I wish it didn't. I wish there weren't so many parallels to today. Right. But I wish there weren't so many, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, recognizing people of African descent in Mexico and, you know, for the census and all the things that, that entails. And, you know, just it's just very current, very contemporary, even though it's written about something four or five hundred years ago. Um, so just overall, again, thank you for your time. Quiero, quiero darle a usted mi, mi todos mis gracias. Mile gracias, gracias mile. Quiero que, que tenga mucho, mucha suerte con, con, la, con el próximo libro. Y otra vez, much, muchísimas gracias. Muchísimas gracias a ti también. Ha sido un placer. And I look forward to, 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 to the final product and also to, con listening, uh, to continue listening to your podcast. And congratulations. Uh, for the great work you're doing through this podcast and through your teaching. Wow, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Again, it's just been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and great luck in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. What a pleasure it has been to speak with Dr. Miguel Valerio. Continue good luck to him with his writing, and I so look forward to following his career. Thank you for listening to episode 138. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find the pod on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. This is a passion project of mine and DIY operation, and I love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. Tell a friend. Tell a family member. Please spread the word. Please be aware that starting most likely in September and possibly in October, Chills at Will podcast will be offered on Patreon. A lot more information will be forthcoming. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 139 with Felicia E. Taylor. She's an impressive creative who is an author, poet, actress, and comic mom. Comic and mom. <laughs> Southern Spiced, A Brown Girl's Tale is her first book of poetry. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Miguel Valerio, whose works, like Sovereign Joy, Afro-Mexican Kings and Queens, 1539 to 1640, give you chills at will.